This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Equity Minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this interview. We have done a lot of industry deep dives in our time on Equity Mates, but one thing that we've spoken about is doing more country deep dives or continent deep dives. Um, and really getting to understand different parts of the world a little bit better. Like in- investing is truly global now. Um, we've spoken a little bit a little bit about Europe on our Ausbiz TV show. Yep. But today we're going to be uh, doing a deep dive on our closest neighbour and probably one of the more exciting regions in the world, uh, and that's Asia. That is Asia, and we have an expert in the studio to help us through it. We would love uh, and very happy to welcome Mary Manning. Mary, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So, for those of you who haven't uh, come across Mary before, she is the Portfolio Manager at Elliston Capital for the Elliston Asia Growth Fund, Elliston Asian Investments, which is uh, available on the ASX, the stock ticker is EAI, and the Elliston India Fund. Prior to joining Elliston, Mary spent five years at Oak Tree Capital Management, the famous firm co-founded by Howard Marks. Mary also has an MBA from Harvard and a PhD in economics from Sydney University and is one of Australia's foremost experts in investing in Asian markets. And we're going to be unpacking it all today. So uh, very excited, Mary. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Very impressive CV. I don't think we could have got anyone better to help us unpack Asia. Um, Before we get into the continent and the investing opportunity there, um, we have a couple of introductory questions just to get to know you a little bit better. And 
Where we like to start with these interviews is the story of your first investment. We generally find there's a good lesson or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yes, absolutely. It's quite interesting what my first investment was because it has kind of been a precursor to my whole career investing in Asian emerging markets. So when I was in business school, um, this was late 1990s, I did a summer internship in Beijing. And I worked at a company that was called VC China. It was one of the first VC companies in, in all of China. And it just helped Chinese entrepreneurs try to like get off the ground. And we worked in an office that had um, no landlines. And everybody had a mobile phone. And some people actually had two mobile phones. One was their work mobile phone and one was their uh, personal mobile phone. And most of the entrepreneurs that we worked with, they didn't have real offices either. <laughs> they were kind of you know on the go and they had one or if not two mobile phones. So my first investment was actually China Mobile. And if anybody uh, who's listening is is one of my investors of my fund, don't worry. Now I do much more work on the, uh, on the companies in which I invest. But at the time, literally, that was my analysis, that there are a billion, more than a billion people in this country, and they all are going to have at least one phone. And so it was the math was pretty simple. And, you know, China Mobile um, was kind of the only way to play that. China Mobile at the time had an ADR and still does. And so as an investor base in North America, it was easy to buy. I think that's, we can get into it later in the show, but that's one of the issues people often have with investing in, in Asia and some of the different countries in Asia is that it's harder to invest. You may need a different account or you, you know, there's, there's different tax implications or something like that. China Mobile was super easy, had ADR, so I bought it and um, I held onto it for about five or six years. So that was my first investment. And it's quite interesting that now I spend almost all my day <laughs> uh, looking at stocks in China and elsewhere in Asia. <laughs> and just for people who uh, heard the acronym ADR, and aren't familiar with it. It stands for American Depository Receipt. Can you just quickly explain uh, what that means and how it allowed you to invest in a Chinese stock? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Chinese stocks or, or stocks that aren't from America can list in America as ADRs and they can list on NASDAQ or, or whatever exchange. But then you just buy it like it would be an American stock, but it's, it's domiciled elsewhere and it, its revenues and, and um, earnings come from elsewhere. But it, it's very easy because it's just like any other U.S. stock. So some of the biggest stocks in the world, like Alibaba, for example, is an, has an ADR. Um, a lot of stocks has a, have ADRs because it just makes it easier for, them to in, for people to invest in them. Mm. So, Mary, you have worked at some of the best uh, funds in the world for some pretty legendary investors, George Soros, Howard Marks. What have been some of the major lessons that you've taken from these investors? Yeah, it's a good question because I do feel very blessed to have worked for these kinds of um, you know iconic investors and certainly at the beginning of my career. Um, so, I guess working at Soros, uh, one thing that I... I and so, you know, I wasn't like sitting across the table from yeah, George. Yeah, going to lunch with him. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was down the hall from him. Um, but uh, I guess... He obviously made his money, um, you know, shorting the British pound yeah. and breaking the, the, you know, Bank of England was kind of his, his signature trade. And um, those don't come along very often. So um, I think one of the main things that I learned working there was the, the benefit of having a big worldview. So the first time I actually met George was not in the office. It was at the Council of Foreign Relations in New York, which is an organization and they bring in world leaders and you have to, your firm or you as a person have to be a member of it. But it's, it's very high level. Like, you know, at the time I was doing it, you know, Thabo Mbeki was the president of South Africa. So 
you just go and go and meet him back like these these kinds of things so I actually met him there before I met him in the office and then I introduced myself and said actually I work for you <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so just to sort of meet to, to know that at his age at the time which was already you know 60 or 70 probably um, that he's still so interested in world events and had such a big worldview I mean he's an iconic investor but he has done a lot of intellectual thinking about like theory of reflex um, reflexivity and about open societies and he has his whole philanthropic just the ability to be a big thinker but then take those those you know very high level thoughts and crystallize them into a trade that makes money I think that 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 is an amazing skill to have very few people in the world have that people are either at the 30,000 foot view brain or they're at a I'm a tactical uh, you know my I have a tactical brain and I'm, I'm making the trade so to be able to marry those two um, and have exposure to someone like that earlier in my career is is was really uh, important um Working at Oaktree, I guess I'll say two things. One is just, again, um, you know, Howard Mark's brain is is amazing. So again, I wasn't sitting across the table from him. Um, but the um, I'll give you one anecdotal evidence. So I actually worked at Oaktree in New York, and then I left for three years, and I did my PhD, and then I went back to Oaktree in the Singapore office. And at one time... Um, Howard came to visit the Singapore office. There was only about 10 of us, so we all went out for lunch. And I was sitting next to him, and I'm thinking, oh, good heavens. <laughs> what am I going to say for the entire lunch to Howard Marks? And so I mentioned, oh, you know, I just finished my PhD, and now I've come back to the firm. And he was like, oh, what did you do your PhD on? And my PhD thesis was totally random. It was about, like, African economic development and the impact of epidemics on, you know, health. And he his intelligence is so like both deep and broad at the same time. I've heard that like Bill Gates is 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 similar. That instead of saying, oh, that sounds pretty random, on to the next thing. He's like, well, what, what what were your thesis conclusions? Well, what does this mean? Well, what does this mean for healthcare? And just having the 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 intellect to be able to um, have a topic that he probably knew absolutely nothing about. And he kind of got the whole gist of what I just spent four years um, <laughs> analyzing in about Two minutes <laughs> and so just to have exposure to people who have that sort of intellect is really important i think the other thing that that um howard is is amazing for is is taking the firm on on a journey so when i first started oak tree was i mean it was it was a very um established firm but over the time that i was there the fum doubled and then they um you know expanded around the world so they had los angeles and new york and london and multiple asian offices and then they did sort of a backdoor listing and then they did a full ipo and then he sold the company so from a wealth generation perspective you know there's there's a lot of people who are good investors but they actually don't do a very good job of running their own firm and i think that that howard marks is a, is a amazing example of someone who can do both invest in other people's companies and use all that knowledge that you use to make good investing decisions to actually um you know do it himself yeah mm -hmm. wow lot to unpack there you, <laughs> i think the first thing is you have to be incredibly smart but then it also sounds like they're both incredibly curious you know howard wanted to learn about your phd thesis george wants to learn about things outside like the investing niche and they i guess they're constantly trying to learn more yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's important. Um, you know, it has had implications for, for my career. And it's probably one of the reasons why I really like doing uh, emerging markets and like investing globally is because there's always something new to learn. Mm. And there's always something going on in a corner of the world. And it's obviously, you know, often very important to that corner of the world. And so I feel like I, I've never been bored a day of my life in, in this career yeah. because there's, there's always something to learn. And I think um, having those people as examples was good to have early on in my career. Mm. So uh, you've worked for some of the best investors in the world. You've done a Harvard MBA. You've done a PhD at Sydney Uni. Throughout all that experience and um, all that learning, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm a growth investor. And that is that um, stylistically, I'm, I'm a growth investor. And that aligns very nicely with uh, investing in certain sectors and in certain regions. So Asia is an amazing structural growth story. And so for me, finding high growth companies in the best structural growth story in the world is is relatively easy. Um, I also, the my favorite sectors are the sectors where I have expertise are technology, uh, consumer and financials. And those are also, um, you know, growth sectors. So I I am definitely looking for growth. And part of that, you know, I, the first firms that I worked for in investing or certainly, you know, when I was buying China Mobile, that I didn't start from day one with that. It was something that was formed over time. And um, one thing, you know, if, if your listeners are interested, one thing that really helped me crystallize my thinking about being a growth investor was just actually crunching the numbers. So I worked for, for I was actually at Ellerston when I first started there and the portfolio manager that I worked for, you had to get 50% upside to be able to pitch a stock. Wow. And so in um, markets, particularly developed markets, to get mispricing of 50% is very hard. Like markets are, are efficient. And as you guys as know, um, you know, technology is making markets more efficient every single day. So to say that there's a stock out there that is where the multiple is 50% mispriced is very rare to find. So if you're an analyst trying to like find <laughs> find 50% <laughs> upside, you figure working backwards, you figure out very quickly, this stock is going to have to have some growth. Mm. If it has some growth and the multiple is maybe a little bit off, I can get my 50% upside. If it has a lot of growth, I don't even need any change in the multiple at all. It can just grow to its 50, it can compound to its 50% upside over a few years. And so that really, for me, that discipline of having to find a certain amount of upside and realizing I'm not going to get there in efficient markets without growth really sort of drove me into the the growth corner. Um, so that's my style in terms of investing. But your question was, was also about philosophy. So I think, um, you know, my philosophy as investor is that, um, you know, number one, you are, I have a fiduciary duty. And um, so this is not about having fun or it's interesting. Like it is fun and it is interesting, but that's that's not the point. Mm. The point is that you have a fiduciary duty to people who have entrusted you with your money. And, um, you know, the second thing, which is getting a lot more attention now, is that you're actually a steward of capital. And that, um, you know, the sort of the rise of ESG and sustainable investing is really highlighting that, that again, it's it's not about having fun and, and being interesting. It's about doing your fiduciary duty and being a good steward of capital. And um that's sort of my philosophy as investing. And having LIC and, and a number of different funds that access the retail market is actually very good. Um, it keeps you in check on those two things. So, you know, I, I met a lady and she's like, well, my parents just passed away and they have given me this inheritance and I think I'm going to put it in your fund. And I was like, ah! Oh. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, first of all, talk to your financial advisor, please. But, you know, knowing that you, you are... Um, like looking people in the eye and them saying, you know, I, I want a dividend because this is what I, I live off of or something like that. That is very good for me philosophically as an investor to remember that this is other people's money and I have a, a duty to invest it in, in um, a certain way. Mm. So let's dig into Asia uh, now as an investment opportunity. You've mentioned there that you're a, a growth investor, Mary. So I'm assuming that is one of the draw cards for uh, specialty in Asia. But why else are you interested in Asia as an investment opportunity? Yeah, so maybe I'll just give a few points uh, around the growth sure. story first, because it's um, it's not as simple as just saying it, it's high growth. I think the important thing is that it's structural growth. So you can get growth. In fact, right now you're getting growth in a lot of markets because last year it sucked in a lot of markets. So <laughs> <Yeah>. then <laughs> if you come from a low base, then then you can get growth. But Asia, Asia is different. There, it's a structural growth story in terms of demographics. And, you know, India, which I think we'll talk about a bit later, is a good example of, of how you, you're going to, and Indonesia is another one, you're going to get growth just by the demographic change that happens. And then because these are emerging economies or less developed economies, you have a lot of things around 
around that that are also structural growth. So whether it's the build out of infrastructure. So, you know, when I first went to some of these um, economies 20 plus years ago, when I started investing, like there was n- no infrastructure. And th- seeing that build out, you know, provides a backdrop for growth. There's technological leapfrogging. So we're seeing this a lot. You know, we saw it with mobile phones. Uh, that was kind of the example I gave at the beginning. You're seeing it now with e-commerce. So I think you, you go to some developing countries in, in Asia or, or elsewhere in the world and there's like no shopping malls. Uh, but everybody has a phone and every company now, every country in the world now has like some sort of e-commerce behemoth, whether it's Alibaba going in or whether it's homegrown. You know, they're, uh, in my view, they're just going to leapfrog that whole build out of shopping mall sort of thing. So, um, you know, Asia has, has that technological leapfrogging part of the structural growth story. And then there's just like a sort of overall productivity gains that happen in Asia, which don't happen in, in, in other markets. So that, that growth is, is um, structural and it's sustainable. And that's why I like it from a... Um, from an investing perspective. I guess the second thing is valuations are, are generally lower. So there still is sort of that, that emerging market risk premium. And we can, we can talk about that later. I have quite strong views <laughs> on that because, you know, if you, if you look at, at what's happened in the U.S. and Europe over the last, let's call it four years, where everything that happened with Trump and, you know, sort of putting bans on certain assets and, you know, civil unrest in Capitol Hill and a major pandemic that's completely out of control and Brexit and a lot of things that happened in developed markets. If those things happen in emerging markets, they would get absolutely smashed. Mm. But they happen in the U.S. and it keeps hitting an all-time high, you know, every day. So I think that that that, val- that valuation discount that gets placed on emerging markets is is largely unfounded um, for, for certain countries. Um, I'd say like most of North Asia, for example, that's unfounded at this time. So you have the fact that they're growing and the, like I was saying before, in terms of how you're going to get your upside, they're growing a lot faster and the multiple is lower. So if you take that high growth and you put on a higher multiple, you can get you know higher forward valuations um, for the stocks. And then I think the, the last thing is that um, Asia is potentially less efficient. So, um, you know, there's, there's um, you know, sort of more ways to find those inefficiencies uh, than there would be maybe in some developed markets. Yeah. Mm. So I think um, Asia is uh, an interesting investing opportunity for a lot of retail investors in Australia and in most Western countries. Um, Are there any key misconceptions you see about the continent and investing in the continent from the retail investing community? Yeah, there's quite a few actually. I guess at the at the top of the list would be that Asian countries have or Asian companies have bad ESG. Um, that that is something that I hear all the time. Is that oh, but aren't, isn't there because corruption high? And how can I be sure the accounts are right and stuff like this? So, um, you know, my view is that companies in Asia, the ESG is not nearly as bad as people think it is. If you actually meet with the companies, particularly in the large cap. Uh, you know, my the average market cap of my uh, portfolio is two hundred billion dollars. Oh, so wow. when you're when you're up at that end, um, you're not dealing with sort of you know family minority shareholder squabbles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are um, you know these are very high quality companies, and the ESG is is generally a lot better than people think it is. Uh, the flip side of that coin is that I don't think ESG in Australia is nearly as good as people think it is. And things like the Royal Commission and you know recent things of some of the commodity companies um, have shown that. So therefore, you put those two things together, and the gap between ESG in Asia and and um, Australia is much smaller than than people think it is. I think the second thing is that um, you know people misconception is that there's extremely heightened political risk in in Asia, and there there certainly is some 
political risk, but I've been investing in Asia since the, you know, in investment capacity in, in Asia since the Asian financial crisis. And there are always ups and downs in, in politics and things generally continue to go up. And there's ups and downs in politics in, you know, Europe and the US also. And that, that summary is a bit of a double standard that isn't a reason not to invest in those countries, but people use it as an excuse not to, not to invest in Asia. And then I think the last misconception is for, for domestic retail investors is that they think they can get exposure to Asia, um, enough exposure to Asia via domestic stocks. So they say, oh, I don't need to um, invest in, in China. I own Rio and BHP. And if China's doing well, these companies will do well. Or, you know, I own, you know, some milk company and it is selling lots of infant formula and milk to China. So, you know, I'm covered. And I think that that is a, a very uh, simplistic view of Asia. So obviously, I think one of the, the best reasons to invest in Asia is because of the technology companies there. And you are not getting that sort of indirect exposure by investing in Chinese, I mean, in Australian commodity companies or Australian consumer companies that sell to China. And, um, you know, so so that and also, you know, China is just one country in Asia. That's the other thing which bugs me, <laughs> to be frank, is that people are saying, well, I have exposure. I have indirect exposure to to China. And it's like, well, but there's 13 countries in my in my benchmark and they're all very different. And so just having indirect exposure to one of them does not count as Asian equity, uh, like sufficient Asian equity exposure, in my view. Mm. Uh, we're probably going to. Uh, even though you've said that about China, we're probably going to focus mostly on China and India in this discussion. Yeah. But um, of those 13 countries outside of China and India, which one do you get most excited about? Oh, that's a good question. So I'll give you a long-term view because things are a bit weird now because of COVID. So when I say I'm excited, it's not like I'm excited you know, about investing there tomorrow. Yeah. I think obviously Indonesia has a lot of um, potential because it's a very big country and has a very young population, has a lot of sort of demographic similarities um, with with India. And there's some really interesting companies that are coming up. So Gojek is yeah, is yeah, one yeah. and, you know, they've just mer they're merging with Tokopedia and they're going to list possibly through a, a SPAC or they're definitely going to list in the US. And to have that sort of first unicorn coming out of that, that that's really exciting. I also quite like, um, again, not right this moment, but um, in general, I like the Indonesian banks. I mean, if you look at the credit penetration in countries like like Indonesia, it's, it's very, very small. And if you look at the opportunities for technological leapfrogging in Indonesia because of the the, um, the geography, like there's so many islands and you don't want to bank branch on every single island. So it's uh, very efficient to have digital banking. So I think there's a lot of um, opportunity there. Um, Korea and Taiwan are... Uh, they're not really emerging markets, but obviously they're they're still part of Asia. But the technology supply chain and the um, the growth of mega cap technology companies in Korea and Taiwan is a is a dominant feature, sort of, of Asian equity in, uh, markets. And so I think um, that's that's not a new story, but um, sort of the dominance of those two countries in terms of technology is not going away anytime soon. Mm. So we did have a question from our community around the um, political stability uh, and investing in Asia, but I feel like you've kind of touched on that in terms of not really worrying about it, given that it happens all over the world. Um, so let's move on to uh, some of the major industries and sectors in Asia. What are you kind of focusing on at the moment? 
So for the, I started the fund almost six years ago now, and there's three core sectors, and there always has been, and there probably always will be. So they're technology, financials, and consumer. Okay. So those are the three growth sectors. Um, together, those typically account for 80 to 85% of my portfolio. And um, part of that is because, you know, in my process or looking for, for growth companies, those sectors are the ones that fall at the bottom of the, the process because they meet all our growth criteria and our high quality criteria and our valuation upside, all the, all the different um, things that we're looking for in the companies that we invest. Um, but I think there's, there's reasons why they, they fall through, which are, are worth going through. So technology, Asia is a technolog technological powerhouse. And you've seen sort of with the rise of the Tencent and, and Alibaba's of, of the world that China really sees um, technology as a way that they're competing with the US. And it was probably about four years ago now, we actually, it was in the middle of the trade war when, when Trump was going really hard on the trade war. And we actually wrote like sort of a white paper about this saying that um, it's not actually a trade war. This is like about technology. At the end of the day, this is going to be about technology. And that is going to be the determining factor with respect to the pace of American hegemonic decline versus the rise of China. So I think that that's a really exciting reason to invest in Asia. And especially for Australian investors, it offers diversification because there aren't that many techno like, you know, very high tech, large cap um, opportunities domestically. And the feedback that I've heard from a lot of investors is that they already own FANG and they have for a long time now. So to increase your exposure now and diversify that technology exposure, Asia is a really, really good way to do that. Um, I guess the second is consumer. So, you know, you have two countries in Asia that have <laughs> over 1.2 billion people. And for a small market like Australia, um, that, that is just, you know, the opportunities that that many people, like just bodies on the ground and, and what they're going to consume as those countries continue to develop is really, really powerful. And then financials. So when I was at Soros and Oaktree, I was at the financials analyst. So financials is kind of like my pet, <laughs> my pet sector. And the reason I like it... Um, well, I like it globally right now, frankly, because um, during COVID, a lot of financials and a lot of financial company management thought there was going to be a huge COVID NPL cycle. So they all did major provisions and then that NPL cycle has not shown up. So now they are either having very small provisions because they've over-provisioned before, or there's even some scope in certain countries for there to be write-backs. Uh, so that's a very positive part of the financial story. And then also... You know, interest rates, they're certainly not going any lower, so they can only be flat or up, and that's generally positive um, for financials. And also right now, as I'm sure you've talked about on, on other shows, you're seeing a rotation out of some of the higher, like, growthy, extremely expensive names into lower PE names, and financials generally fit that bill. Like, the average PE of my tech portfolio is probably 30 times, and the average... Uh, of my finance, the financials in the portfolio is probably 11 times. So for that reason, I'm massively overweight financials now. But in, in general, in Asia, financials are good because credit penetration is so low in Asia. So like in, in India, you know, mortgage penetration is 9%. So they could grow mortgages at 20% a year for many, many, many years, and they're not going to run out of people who want a mortgage. And so overall, like putting that together, I think uh, financials is a really interesting sector. So it's, you know, tech consumer financials. So we've, we've touched on the fact that... Uh, there are two countries in Asia with over 1.2 billion people, China and India. By 2050, they're expected to be the two largest economies in the world, so both of them to leapfrog the US and everyone else. Um, how did I guess, how do you compare and how do you think about these two countries from an investment perspective? Okay, that's a great question because people often ask me, is India the next China? And I say, no, it's the first India. <laughs> it's not going to... Um, you know, to think that that India is on the same development pathway as China, but it's just a you know a decade behind maybe is is 
not the right way to look at it. So <laughs> I don't like starting with a negative, but if how I look at it, that's certainly not how I look at it. I look at them as, and you know, I do have a background as a development economist, so I certainly recognize the developmental paths of these two countries, and they're they're not the same. Um, and to, to sort of the, the earlier question that the reader had before, um, you know, obviously India's the biggest democracy in the world, or the, the listener had before, India's the biggest democracy in the world, and China's not a democracy. So right from the get-go, you have two, two mm. totally different countries. But the way that, that I look at it is... Um, you know, from a from a macro perspective, uh, I think you need exposure to both. So, um, you know, I have this slide in one of my presentations that's like Asia is too big to ignore. And I think that if for both of those countries, if you think of what you said at the beginning, that by 2050, they're going to be the two largest economies in the world. The last numbers I looked at, um, which are maybe a little bit off because of COVID, but by 2030, it's expected that China is the biggest economy, then the US and then India. So you have two of the three largest economies in the world uh, are in Asia. But when you ask people about their portfolios, they generally have no exposure or very little exposure <laughs> to either. So I think at some point people need to get their head around the fact that um, you know these are massive economies and you're going to need to have um, exposure to them and then other than that though um, one of the things that I'm I'm hoping is more similar between the countries is that you've seen the rise of these huge mega cap tech companies in China and thus far you haven't seen that in India but um, I think we can talk about that later there is a, a very attractive IPO pipeline in India and we're hoping that there's a homegrown Tencent and there's a homegrown Alibaba and there's you know certain supply chains and um, things that list in India or companies that become very big in India so that it's it's similar to China in terms of those mega cap tech companies. Mm. Yeah, we, we are very uh, excited to get into that and some of the company specific stuff. Um, before we do, um, you know, with China and India, the the demographic story is, you know, the, the big conversation. And you spoke about that earlier in terms of structural drivers. And, you know, there's this uh, saying demographics is destiny and, you know, people sort of think it's almost... Uh, preordained that all this development will happen because of the demographic uh, mix. But I guess, uh, you know, China has seen a lot of that growth. India, not so much. It's There's a lot of potential growth there, but it's not, I guess, guaranteed. What makes you confident that India will be able to realize the potential that their demographics offer? Yeah. Okay. So this is that. That is a very good question. And before I answer it, I'll just say, um, obviously, I am aware that that India is going through a difficult time right now, and that COVID in in India, certainly the second wave, has has been absolutely devastating, and will continue to be for at least the next few months. So the comments that I say are, are with a longer term perspective, not as a, like what's happening right this moment. So I get asked that question a lot because people say India always looks like it has a lot of potential, and is it is it delivering? And to be frank, when I first started investing in Asia and emerging markets, India was not my my favorite country, even though those demographic building blocks were there. And one of the main reasons was they didn't have the the policy um, environment in place. They didn't have the political leaders in place and they didn't have the leadership there to sort of take India on the path that it, it needed to go on. So remember, like historically, India had all this import substitution and they still have a big current account deficit. They have to import a lot of oil and it was just kind of a bit of a macro mess. And I think that in 2014, when Prime Minister Modi was elected, that really changed a lot of things. So, um, you know, he did a lot of very bold policy um, changes, whether it's like demonetization or um, introduction of 
the GST or reform of the banking system. I mean, these sound boring, um, but they're actually, for a country like India, they're actually really important to, to get right. So I think that having the right political leadership is absolutely critical for India achieving its its potential. There's, the, the train is moving no matter what, but if you have a good conductor, like it can just move a lot faster and, and um, that will be much better for India's long-term development. I think the other thing that's important to highlight about India is that there are all these big companies like Infosys and, and TCS, which, um, you know, they're, they're like almost $100 billion or over $100 billion market cap companies now. And they um, have an expertise in, in IT services. And India is also the biggest manufacturer in the world of, of pharmaceutical products. So a lot of people don't appreciate this about India. They think it's it's the consumer story and you want to buy like Nestle and Hindustan Unilever in, in India because there's all these Indians that are going to be buying you know more stuff as, as the economy develops. But it's important to highlight that India's actually been very, very successful in actually exporting different products too. So back to your original question, that's one way and it's completely different than China. China went down the sort of manufacturing route and India is like services, uh, you know, IT and, and, and pharma. So yeah, I think India needs the right political leadership and Modi... It'll be interesting to see how the population responds to his handling of COVID. Because as you may know, there's state elections going on. And that's part of the reason why the infections have gotten so out of control is because he just kept on campaigning and kept encouraging hundreds of thousands of people to go to rallies. And the criticism, which I actually agree with, is that he has put winning, winning state elections over the health of Indian people. And whether that comes back to haunt him in the next election is yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. So, um, Mary, we're interviewing someone uh, on the show soon, David Halpert from Print Street Capital. Um, he has this thesis around digital decolonization and how the big US tech companies have basically colonized the world um, and that a lot of uh, countries are now decolonizing in some ways and they're seeing their own sort of platforms, you know, payments platforms, social media platforms, uh, sort of push the US giants out. Is that a trend that you're seeing in Asian markets? That's very interesting. I'd never thought of it that way before. So in China, definitely no. So China has had the the wall up yeah, and yeah. Uh, like nobody's getting in. And that um, is is part of the reason why you've had the ascent of the, the Tencents and the Alibabas and even now the PDDs and Meituans. I mean, you, you have like half a dozen uh, Chinese internet and tech-related companies that have market caps of 200 billion plus. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's easy to thrive when <laughs> when there's a big wall up that's not letting in your your international competitors. So I'd say China um, definitely not. I think for the the and Korea, I would also say definitely not. So Korea, you know, there's a company called Naver which we own, which is is kind of like um, the it's kind of like the Google of uh, of Korea. There's another company called Kakao, which is kind of like the Tencent of um, of Korea and it's spinning out. It has this like Kakao Pay and Kakao Bank. So there's, um, I would say no in Korea. Part of this may also be language. So you have countries that have a completely different language and have like the right, like they don't use the, they have a different, like they have characters instead mm. of instead of um, letters. That that could be a big barrier to entry to some of the, the US funds or the, the sort of US tech companies. In ASEAN, I would say that that, that is probably true. Uh, and in India, I would say that sadly, that is definitely true. So I think Facebook is like India's second biggest market in the world or, or something like that. And I, I even notice, so almost all of the um, broking and interaction with uh, with brokers and sell-side analysts in India is all on WhatsApp. So it's, um, it's very much a Facebook, WhatsApp wow. sort of market. Yeah. And whether, you know, Reliance and Reliance Geo can combat that at this time, um, 
you know, it's, it's not it's not exactly the same, but, uh, you know, that's a question that remains to be seen. So I, I would say it differs across Asia. India is probably the, the one that's been colonized the most and China is the one that's been colonized the least. Yeah. Well, let's uh, chat about Reliance and Geo. But before we do, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Mary, any conversation about uh, Indian companies obviously has to start with Reliance. Uh, Its ticker is RIL. It is India's largest public uh, company, and it has been of interest to many Western tech companies, you know, Alphabet, uh, Facebook, Microsoft. What is the opportunity with Reliance and its subsidiary, Geo? Okay, so I say that the opportunity is threefold. First of all, Reliance is a conglomerate and it has three main parts. So the first is sort of their old boring business, uh, which is like petrochemicals and and energy. And people are like, oh, snooze. Um, (laughs) But it's actually important in terms of the other two sector uh, segments because this was a cash cow and it allowed them to continue to spit out cash and spit out cash every single year, billions of dollars of free cash flow so that they could invest in geo and invest in retail and bring them up to the size of companies that they they have now. Um, the other thing I'll mention about the the boring bit is that Saudi Aramco is taking a stake in it. And, um, you know, MBS, the, the prince was on CNBC recently saying, you know, the deal is, is going to happen very soon, like probably in the next three to six months. And so... The fact that you know Saudi Aramco is buying into their energy assets is a big sort of tick in the box because if anyone knows about energy assets, yeah. it's, the, it's the Saudis. So that's the the business that nobody really likes, but it's still very important. Okay, and then the geo business. Um, Basically, they had nothing about five, six years ago. They had they had no uh, foray into telecom at all. It was not one of their core businesses, and they spent tens of billions of dollars building up a mobile phone network basically from scratch. And now they have over 400 million subscribers. So to do that in a, such a short period of time is amazing. And part of the way that they did it was that it was it was loss leading for quite a long time. But when you have this cash cow spitting stuff out, you can do that, which none of their competitors had that option. So they just really like cleaned up the, the competitive landscape. So now when you meet with Reliance IR and, and talk about Geo, they say that they want to be the 10 cent of, of India. And again, that kind of bugs me. It's like is India the next China? Just like 
be your own be your own thing. <laughs> but I think what they mean by that is that they want to be an ecosystem. So the thing about Tencent and Alibaba is that they're ecosystem stocks. So once you're in WeChat, then you get offered all this other stuff. It's kind of like being in the in the Apple ecosystem. Once you're in, you're you're not going to go get a Samsung phone. Yeah, we've yeah. spoken about super apps a little bit on uh, on the show and in our thought starters email. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, WeChat's the perfect example of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's what Reliance, they don't, they don't maybe really want to be Tencent in terms of they want lots of revenue from gaming, but they just want to be an ecosystem. And thus far, they are, they are doing um, really well at that in terms of the other apps that they're offering and um, the sort of connectivity um, between the, the different businesses. Um, so I think that's going to be very powerful. And then the third business is retail. And that that is, a, a, a you know, the the synergies between uh, retail and geo are very strong because if like I was saying before if everyone has a phone and you're actually the biggest retailer the the opportunity for e-commerce is is very strong so those two businesses geo and um, retail are going to get spun out from reliance sometime in the next two years so geo will probably go first it's anticipated later in 2021 or in 2022 and then reliance retail will go after that so and these once they get spun out the the estimated market caps are going to be very big so geo is supposed to be around 70 billion us and uh, retail will be about 60 billion us and so these are like to be spun out at that (laughs) that size is really amazing so that's the i mean that that's the operational um opportunity for reliance but the investing opportunity is that when these companies list they're going to trade at much higher multiples than they're trading at within reliance so we do some of the parts all the time on reliance <laughs> and um you know if if they list at 60 or, or 70 and if saudi aramco comes in at a valuation that's higher than what's near some of the parts then the current reliance stock will go up because that some of the parts is going higher so you mentioned retail there, and if we stay in India, uh, a big e-commerce uh, battle is, I guess, underway. Um, Amazon uh, in India, and then Flipkart, uh, which is owned by Walmart, um, is is also there. And I guess they're really going head to head for supremacy in the Indian e-commerce market. What what do you how do you think about um, you know the e-commerce the state of e-commerce in India and um, Flipkart, I think, is about to IPO. So if you have any thoughts on on that proposed IPO, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, so um, I guess there, there's a couple things. One is that um, they are going head to head. And to get back to Bryce's um, earlier comment, the fact that Alphabet, Facebook and Microsoft have all invested in Reliance um, and that you know Walmart has bought into Flipkart and they're going head to head with Amazon, this shows you that when the, the CEOs and the head of strategies at these big global tech firms looking around the world, their eyes are all have all ended up in, in India at some point because there is no other market in the world where there's one company that all those big competitors from the US have, have gone in. And like Walmart, this is one of their, their biggest forays into e-commerce anywhere. And that like they could have done it anywhere in the world. They could have done it in the US and they, they chose India because that's where they see the sort of opportunity set. So I think the thing is that one thing to, to highlight about Amazon and, um, and Flipkart is that India is a massive market, so it doesn't have to be winner take all. There, there could definitely be room in a in a country of 1.2 plus billion people, and you know one of the third one of the largest economies in the world for for two major e-commerce players. The uh, the other thing I'll say is I actually did a um a study for an organization called Asia Business Link, um, and their sort of uh, mandate is to help Australian businesses uh, succeed in Asia. So I did a study for them about how multinationals have succeeded in India. And it is a difficult market to succeed in if you're a multinational. It is very, very localized. So one of our companies, Hindustan Unilever, um, 
you know, it's, it's obviously Unilever's company in India. They have this whole strategy called winning in, in many Indias. And they break India down into, it's not even by the state. It's like, this is a massive country and you can't think of it as, as a massive country. You need to think of it as like many, many different smaller companies, uh, countries, sorry. And I think um, there are a lot of examples of multinationals or big U.S. companies that go into India and they don't understand the they don't understand that India is different and they don't understand that there's lots of different Indias within India and they just fail and, and pull out. Uh, you know, a lot of the auto companies are, are good examples there. So I don't know how Amazon is going to do, to be frank, but it's much harder to be um, an outsider coming into India and trying to succeed than it is to already be on the ground. So the Flipkart IPO is supposed to come sometime. There's no time frame on that. Like like Reliance and Geo, it's it's pretty you know confirmed when they're when they're going to come. Um, but it's estimated to be around twenty five thirty billion dollars. So again, these are not like little microcaps yeah, yeah. that are <laughs> listing. They're they're listing at at very big valuations. But that's something that we will definitely be interested in participating in when it does happen. So given we're talking about you know big tech companies and um, you know sort of multi-billion dollar market cap companies, if we move to China, we've touched on a few in uh, this conversation, Tencent, Alibaba, but there's Pinduoduo, Meituan, Baidu, like these are massive companies uh, in their own right. Most of them are pretty heavily localized in China. Um, how do you think about the, I guess, the international opportunities for a company like Tencent or a company like Baidu? Like, do you think they will break out of China or do you think uh, they will be domestically focused tech companies? I think they will continue to be domestically focused because there are so many, like, so they have their ecosystems and then they have like different verticals and then they have, um, you know, so they can go down and they can go out, but they can continue to go down and out without leaving China. So, for example, I'll give you Baidu as a company that I own in the portfolio right now. I didn't own it for a really long time. So it's like the Google of China. And it was just kind of like a boring search thing and ad revenues were going down and there was no reason to own it. And they have recently gone into the electric vehicle space. So they have partnered with Geely, which is one of the domestic, um, you know, auto OEMs. And they are providing sort of like the the tech for um, for um, automated driving and they have a huge cloud business and they have all these other um, sort of ancillary businesses to search which which are not currently in the valuation which make it really exciting at this time if you look now for for Alibaba and Tencent you know cloud is a, is a major driver so these aren't you know like for Tencent games is still the cash cow but there's other things that are growing much faster similarly for for Alibaba PDD and Meituan they right now are going very very hard into growth so um, uh, Meituan did a $10 billion equity raise uh, earlier this week, and they said we're spending $6 billion a quarter to get to do a land grab in grocery. Wow. And so if, if they're doing land grab in grocery, well, Alibaba is going to have to do it also, <laughs> otherwise they'll lose market share. So I think that there's still so much going on in China that they don't really need to go elsewhere. Um, that's operationally. But one thing I will say is that... Um, you should, you should Google it if you have time after, but there's this like Harun unicorn list where they this organization goes through and like ranks and lists all the unicorns in the world. And they also have part of the report which looks at what are the biggest VC yeah. funds in the world. And actually Alibaba and Tencent are, are not only two of the biggest tech companies in the world, they're two of the biggest VC companies in the world yeah. if, you, if you define that as, as investment in unicorns. We, um, we did a deep dive on Tencent at the start of the year and we found a spreadsheet that someone had put together where they tried to list as many of Tencent's VC investments as possible possible and they they estimated there was up to 700 i don't think there's a full list anywhere but we're going through the list and it was like you know buzzy companies like roblox afterpay like 
they might be a Chinese operator, but they are investing globally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that that's I think that the internationalization will happen more from a investment perspective than it will from an operational perspective. So Mary, you've spoken a lot in recent presentations about the IPO pipeline in Asia. Um, why are you so excited about it at this time and how is it different to the IPO pipelines elsewhere? Yeah, so I, I'm super excited about it. So I, I've been covering Asia for 20 plus years. I've never seen the IPO pipeline this hot or this exciting. So um, part of the reason is because they're all new economy companies. So when I first started doing Asia, the IPO pipeline was like, you know, the National Bank is getting privatized. <laughs> and you're like, ooh, woohoo. Um, or, you know, there's some big state, owned, the, tel- the state telcos. This was a big thing in like the, the 1990s and the 2000s. The state telco, it was like, like Telstra and CBA. Yeah, that there, yeah. there were tons and tons of IPOs like that. And, you know, that's fine. That's great for the, the countries that those sorts of companies are listing, but it's pretty boring for the investors. So the, the IPO pipeline now, one thing I'll say is that the, the t- kinds of companies are very interesting. So it's very, very tech heavy, as you would, would expect. And um, as I was saying before, in terms of like diversification for Australian investors, um, you know, that that's really attractive. So some of the ones that we've had in the last six months are JD Health. So that's a spinoff from JD. Dot com And it's like the online pharmacy and they have some other businesses, but primarily like online pharmacy of, of JD. And that was a very, um, that was a uh, very attractive IPO. And then Kuaisho, which is the second um, biggest competitor to TikTok and ByteDance in China. They also, also um, IPO'd. And these, these companies are IPOing at like 50, $100 billion plus sort of market Jeez. caps. So that's the second thing that I'll say is that these are not small caps. So, you know, we, ha- we have a small cap and a micro cap team in, in Australia. And I look at some of the deals that they're looking at. And then I look at these companies yeah. that literally. So, so uh, you know, like, for example, Kwaisho, they did a pre-IPO round of, um, you know, I think it was $4 billion. And you had to put in $300 million. That was the ticket size. Wow. And so these are like, these are really big, big um, companies. And the thing to, to specifically answer your question that's different than before is that when you have small IPOs, maybe they're interesting companies and maybe they're hot IPOs. IPOs and you participate. But when they list, if they're a $5 billion market cap, they're making no difference to your benchmark at all. And as a, you know, I do, I'm benchmark independent, but I like my, the whole point is to outperform the benchmark, right? <laughs> and so um, the difference with these companies is that when they list, if they list and their market cap is $150 billion, they get on the benchmark right away. MSCI says we're doing a, a special entry thing and a week from now, it's going to be a 2% weight. So like Meituan, it hasn't been listed for that long. It's already almost a 3% weight yeah, in the benchmark. So this is this is very different because as an investor, you you need to be looking at the IPOs, not just as IPOs, but as companies that are going to be in your benchmark yeah. straight away. Um, I think the other thing that's really exciting about the pipeline is it's not just China. So there have been, you know, obviously China... Hong Kong Exchange is one of my biggest overweights because you were just going to see massive, um, you know, uh, IPO pipeline out of China. But if you look at the unicorns, you know, there's there's um, Kupang, which is sort of the JD Alibaba of, of Korea listed earlier this year. Um, you know, again, 50, it listed at 56 and it went up quite a bit. So it's, um, you know, very big market cap company. Um, you're seeing Gojek and Tokopedia, which we we already talked about. Uh, you're seeing, um, you know, uh, Grab from Singapore, which is kind of the Uber of Singapore. So it's not just, and then all the Indian ones, which, we, which we've also talked about. This is not just a China pipeline. It's actually quite pan-Asian. And I think that that's exciting. Yeah, you mentioning some of those companies, you, you do start to realize just how big the opportunity set is there. 
One uh, one potential IPO that I think would make the world extremely excited. It would definitely make Bryce very excited because he's a big user of this company's product. Uh, do you think ByteDance uh, will IPO? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I definitely think that they, they will IPO. And this whole, I mean, what I was talking about before in terms of... Um, you know, political risk and the, and the double standard. Like Trump just didn't like TikTok because it screwed up one of his rallies. So he, <laughs> he you know, went on this this rampage about trying to ban TikTok and stuff. So I think that ByteDance, um, yeah, it, it is going to IPO. In terms of the expected valuations, it's anywhere between 200 and 400 billion. Nice. But even wow. if it's, you know, like 400 billion, what kind of companies IPO at 400 yeah. billion? Now that, that could be a crazy, we don't have enough information on the financials right now to to know whether that's true or not. But regardless, even if it's the low end of that range, that's still, that's still really there? big. A, a trillion. Well, yeah. Like, well, that, you, that's, yeah. You miss the IPO. It's like. So with the way that we're looking at IPOs, um, they're obviously super competitive. So it's not like you say, oh, I'd like $100 million of the IPO and you get $100 million. Um, You know, some of the brokers have told me that um, they look at all the people who want to participate and they cut the list in half and the bottom half are zeroed out wow. straight wow. from the get-go. And the, the big accounts at the top who are like, you know, the global sort of behemoths in fund management, they all get a decent allocation and everyone else in the middle is fighting for the scraps. So I'm in the fighting for the scraps <laughs> part of that <laughs> thing. But as long as you get a scrap and you've done the hard work, like this is what we did for Kwaisho and JD, is that you've done the work and you know, okay, this is a company that I want to own long-term. I'm not in this for the IPO flip. Um, then you're buying more on the first day. And what the IPO gives you is a, is a lower average entry price. So in terms of where you go from there, there's a, there's a lot of um, you know upside and, and build out for these companies. And if you can get any participation in the IPO, it's just you know helping your return later on. So there's no doubt that the Asian opportunity is massive, but uh, for a retail investor, getting access is becoming easier, but still not as easy as if we were to buy into the US or, or whatever it might be. From um, your point of view, what advice would you have for retail investors interested in the Asian opportunity? Yeah, so it is getting easier. Part of the reason why we have an LIC and also a, a unit trust is because people want that liquidity. So they want, you know, I want to be able to in, invest in Asia, but I, I want daily liquidity. And so that's part of the reason that we have an, an LIC. And I think we've, we've gotten very positive feedback on that. Um, the second thing I'll say about having an LIC is we do have a decent dividend. So like I invest in growth stocks, so you wouldn't expect me to have a dividend, right? Because there's no dividend pass through. But Asian markets have gone up a lot since we started and I've realized a lot of profits. So if you go in via an LIC structure, you can get both that upside and you know our dividend yield right now is around four and a half percent so that's um quite attractive to to a lot of people one thing i will caution your listeners about is in addition to the people who say oh i don't need to invest in asia i have you know bhp and a2 milk are the people who say um i just bought tencent and alibaba and i'm done that's yeah. my whole, okay, those are amazing companies. They're, they're two of the biggest weights in my portfolio. I, I get that. I'm not at all disputing that. But you to get access to everything, all the exciting things that are going on in Asia, you need a diversified portfolio and you need someone who's watching it all the time. So just to invest in those two stocks, and I think a lot of people got burned because Alibaba actually had a terrible November to January and it's still sort of the stock price is languishing down Um at around that level. But I think it, it highlighted to a lot of people that Asia is a complicated market and you can't just try to play the whole thing and all the thematics that are going on in all the countries by buying two stocks, mm-hmm. which are actually very similar in one country. <laughs> and just a reminder that, uh, Mary, your fund, the LIC that you're talking about is the Elliston Asian Investment Fund and its ticker is EAI. Yeah. yeah. To, to just finish up on your question, India is a very difficult market to invest in. And that's mm. part of the reason why we have an Indie fund, because um, you cannot open up a 
PA account. India, unlike uh, China, has very, very few ADRs. There's like Infosys and, you know, one bank and one loss-making travel company. <laughs> so you really, again, you, you can't you can't get a portfolio by buying ADRs. So that's one of the reasons why we started the India Fund. A, a high net worth investor came to us and said, every other market in the world, I do it myself. I can't, this is, it's just all too hard in India. So <laughs> please start a fund and it's sort of grown from there. But um, I think there's, there's a large spectrum in, um, in Asia of markets that are easy and difficult to invest in. That's the kind of scale that we need where we can go to a professional fund say, manager yeah. and say, I want you to start a fund the on equity, this thing that I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, the Equity Mates community want an Indonesia-specific fund. Yeah, yeah well, you, you know where to find We've me. We've got the scale. <laughs> so one other question um, for the retail investors, and this is definitely something that I've grappled with, is when we're talking about a, a country like India or just maybe emerging markets more generally, a lot of people default to market cap-weighted indexes because that's what's available on exchanges in you know Western countries like Australia, the UK, the US. Um, how do you think about an indexing approach in a country like India? Okay, so I don't have a problem with market cap-weighted at all. Uh, in fact, I, I've thought a lot about this. And unlike um, some developed countries or emerging markets, say maybe 20 years ago. So if you were to look at emerging markets 20 years ago, the largest market cap companies would be the privatized oil company, the privatized bank, the privatized telco. And those are not the best stocks in the in the country. They got to be that way because they had some government uh, support and then they just IPO'd and they were they were big. And Australia actually kind of <laughs> fits that, that category too. If you look at, you know, many years ago, what were the largest companies? But what's happened now is that the companies that are the biggest market caps got that way because they're the best. Mm. And so if you look like Samsung in Korea, yes, of course, it's 35% of the Cospi or whatever it is now, because it's it's like an absolute behemoth, which has just, you know, been incredibly successful. And TSMC is the same thing in, in Taiwan. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the most amazing semiconductor country company in the world. And, you know, it, uh, Alibaba and Tencent, which we, we've talked about a lot, or Reliance. So these... Um, um, you know, I, I've debated this because I, I do hold a lot of these um, companies in my portfolio and people say, well, if you hold these large cap companies, then you look like an ETF. And I have two responses to that. One is I have the same, um, there, there is some overlap between the stocks that I own and what you would own in, in a market cap weighted ETF, but I generally own way more. So like, for example, if Alibaba was a 5% weight, I've had up to 14% of the portfolio in it. Or if Reliance is, a, I think it's a 1%, maybe 2% weight now, like I'll have up to 5% in it. So part of it is is if you like these these large cap companies, you can um, invest in them even more than you would in a passive. But the, I think that the bigger thing to your question is that, so people say that there is one fund who's one of my competitors and they don't buy any of those big ones because they're like, I don't want to look like an ETF. I'm just buying forget about market cap weights, I'm just buying the companies that I, I like. But my response to that is that these companies got to be the biggest market cap companies in Asia and in the world because they're the best. Mm. So why would you run an Asia fund where you're purposely not buying the best <laughs> companies? Like that, that is completely insane to me. So I, I don't, the short answer to questions, I don't have a problem with market cap based. Um, and I think we actually did a lot of analysis of this before we started the fund and made the decision to focus on large caps. In Asia and emerging markets, your risk return on small caps is very bad because you have um, higher liquidity risk by definition. You have way higher ESG risk and you generally don't get the returns. And so for me, large cap is better risk reward. And if that means that you're more market cap weighted, so be it. Yeah. And it feels like the conversation we've just had, a lot of the highest growth growth companies aren't listing as small caps and yes. going on a public journey to becoming these large monsters. 
they list as the biggest companies on in the index. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Mary, we want to thank you for joining us today. I, I reckon we could have done another couple of hours talking about uh, some of these countries. Uh, well, there's countries we didn't even touch that are in your in your remit. So we'll have to get you back. Uh, but before then, if people want to read more about what you've done or follow you online, um, is there anywhere in particular they should be going, any social media you're particularly active on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you can always go to the Elston website. That has all the information on the funds. And I do um, write a lot and obviously write a monthly for, for all the funds um, that I have. So that's one area. Or feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm happy to chat and um, be in contact with people on LinkedIn. Nice. nice. Uh, so we do like to in- end these interviews with the same three questions. Um, so we'll get stuck into those. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must reads? Okay, so I thought about this a lot because you sent me the questions. <laughs> and I was like, do I want to sound like an anti-intellectual on their show? So I'll be honest with you. And I know that you have the thing on your website that's like books that, that you're recommending. Yeah. So I purposely try not to read books about investing. And do you know what the reason why is because, so like to use an exercise example. So I do lots of different things. I swim every morning, I run, I do yoga, I do Pilates. And, and it's, you know, that diversification and the cross training is really nice. And I feel like for my brain, like I wake up in the middle of the night to check my how my ADRs are trading. And then I, the first thing I do when I wake up is check how the ADRs closed or how they're trading when I get up. And then I get in the car and I listen to podcasts or I listen to Bloomberg Daybreak. And I spend all day thinking about equity markets. And then I go home and give my kids dinner. And if I like snuggle up with a book about investing, like yeah. that is just, that is just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I think like my brain, similar to like doing yoga, Pilates, running and, and swimming, like your brain needs other things. So I read a ton of fiction, which my, my husband gives me a terrible time for. And he's like, there's so many interesting things going on in the world. Why would you read things that are made up? But anyways, I read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of historical fiction that takes place in Asia. So you're sort of learning about history at the same time. And um, yeah, so no, I don't have any books to recommend. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> it's the short answer. That is fine. <laughs> that is fine. Uh, the next question, which we're trialing this year, um, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? HDFC, which is an Indian financial. And um, the reason is it has it ticks every single box. I think it's the best run financial in the entire world. If you look at their cost-income ratio, if you look at the way that they uh, manage their NPLs, if you look at the stability of the management team, if you look at, um, you know, sort of, every single metric that people would use to identify a quality company in the world, um, it ticks all those boxes. And then you have the, the added benefit of, you know, it, it's, a, it's a mortgage company in a country that has 9% mortgage penetration. So mm. it can continue to be an amazing company for 50 years from now. Wow. So that's what I'd say. Wow. Company I've never heard of. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad we added this question in. We're getting some really <laughs> some interesting good answers. answers. Yeah. <laughs> and so then final question, um, if you... You know, think back to earlier in your career when you were uh, at that lunch with Howard Marks or meeting George Soros uh, for the first time um, or just starting out in your career. What advice would you give for you to your younger self? So it's a, it's a very good question. The first thing I would do is, is not actually give myself advice, but I would congratulate myself on taking risks because when I was younger, I took some crazy risks like I think back and I'm like what on earth was I thinking so I'll give you I'll give you an example so I was an investment banker in New York and I won some international experience before I went to business school because you have international experience you have a much higher chance of getting into a good business school so um 
Solomon Brothers at the time was like, well, why don't you go work in our Moscow office? So, you know, that's a bit random. It was like late <laughs> 1990s. I don't speak Russian. I, okay, so that was an option. And then there was another investment bank that was in Azerbaijan. And um, yeah, they had a headquarters in Baku and they were like, oh, why don't you come work for us? And I thought my parents are going to absolutely freak <laughs> if I say I'm moving to Azerbaijan. So I told them the Azerbaijan one first and they were like, oh, they did completely freak. And then I said, oh, actually I have this, this other opportunity in Moscow. And they're like, oh, definitely go to Moscow. And it, it seemed like... Um, a much better option. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I did some random things and I like I went to China and worked for VC China, even though I don't speak Mandarin and I spent a year living in Africa. And so I think for people, when you're younger, for like take risks because it's a great time to do it. So like now, you know, I have two kids and my husband and I both have our careers established here. It's not like we're packing up and moving to Azerbaijan anytime yeah. soon. <laughs> so when that, the first thing I'd say is like, well done for taking risks because the older you get, the harder it, it gets to do that. The second thing to my younger self, I would start investing a lot earlier. So we were talking before the show that, you know, I have a 14 year old son and he has started investing and he's already learned things, which I wasn't learning until I was in my 20s. And I think the the sooner you do it, the better off you are. And I think, um, you know, I know you guys have uh, have a relationship with um, Sophie and Maddie in terms of uh, you're in good company. And I think that that sort of, um, you know, particularly for women, because the, the investment gap, uh, if you don't start investing early, um, can be absolutely huge by the time you're ready to retire. So that would be my, my main... Um, um, advice to my younger self is start investing sooner because you learn you learn something every time you make an investment and the the more you the earlier you start the more you'll learn mm. it's crazy the amount of uh, experts that come on and have that as their piece of advice is just get started as soon as possible yeah, yeah exactly mary thank you very much it's been a truly fascinating conversation uh, as alex said plenty more to unpack so we'll definitely have to get you back on it at some point to to continue the discussion but appreciate your time I know there was a lot of value that uh, our audience would have taken from that. So um, thank you for your time today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 